Hey, good morning, everybody. What a day outside, am I right? Come on, Portland. Well done. Hey, as most of you know, this coming fall, I am stepping down from the role of pastor for preaching and vision to turn Practicing the Way into a freestanding nonprofit. And my friend Tyler Staten and his lovely family are moving here over the summer to serve as the next lead pastor of our church. And this morning, it is my joy, my heart is full of joy, to introduce you to Tyler in person, kind of, sort of. Everything is in, like, what does in person even mean anymore other than death by COVID? Um, but sorry, that was way too macabre. Just, this, is what I, this is why I teach from notes and don't just stand up and pontificate. I'm so sorry. I apologize. A better lead pastor is coming. It's all going to be just fine. But it is my joy to introduce you this morning. There's so much I could say about this man. He is a friend. Let me just pay the ultimate compliment. He is the exact same person on stage as he is off. He practices what he preaches, which for a preacher is the ultimate litmus test, and he is a good preacher. I know this man off stage. I know him as a man of prayer. I know him as a man of integrity and family, a good husband and a good father, and above all, a man whose primary identity is not pastor or teacher or writer, but is apprentice of Jesus. And I'm so excited for you to receive the gift of this man who was fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And just one invitation to you this morning. You know, the natural human inclination in the next few minutes will be to evaluate Tyler, to either critique him or compare him or idealize him and import all of the disappointment that I bring into your life onto him. He will be better in all of the ways, and he is an extrovert, so... That's already a massive win for you when it comes to your pastor or one of your pastors. And I want to invite you just to set that aside. It's really hard, those of you gathering with us online in this brutal era of church online, which we pray will end soon, because you're watching this through a medium which is designed and has habituated you to watch for entertainment or information or news or to critique, or you're watching this through the same browser that you like go to Rotten Tomatoes on and look up a movie and decide if you want to watch it. And I just want to invite you to set that aside or push against that and let the counter move of the Spirit of God awaken in your heart. And I just want to invite you to welcome him. You are a warm, hospitable, welcoming church. That's one of the things I love about you. It's one of the things that when we have guest teachers come that they praise you for. Our city is not really that way. Our city is kind of more, show me if you're cool. But you're not like that. And so I just want to invite you to kind of exercise and flex that muscle that you already have and welcome Tyler. There's a, there's a saying in the Benedictine tradition from St. Benedict's Rule of Life, which dates to the 6th century BC that Tyler and I both love, that says, welcome a guest as if he is Christ. And so as he comes, I just want you to search for Christ in this man. And you'll see it. You'll see his humanity and his personality, good and bad. But I want you to search for Christ in this man. And we're different personalities, Tyler and I. But we both share a very kindred heart and vision for the future of the church. We both believe that the future of the church is ancient. 
that the way forward for our secular kind of progressive city is actually to go back to practices of the monastic orders and deep contemplative prayer and a, a life of thick community and discipleship to Jesus and, and really life in the spirit of God. And he will take that torch and he will carry it farther than I ever could. So will you please, with joy, make a bunch of fun Bridgetown noise, even you in the basement and even you at home, and welcome Tyler Staten. Thank you. Thank you very much, friends. So um, that was uh, way too nice, and uh, I look forward to letting you down for years to come. Uh, uh, I do just want to quickly offer an outsider's perspective. I always think that's helpful when uh, an outsider comes into a family to tell you what the family looks like from that perspective, um, and just say that I want you to know that the leadership of this church is of the highest quality that I've gotten to spend this week getting to know every staff member at this church. And uh, everyone's wildly competent, which is always great, but um, everyone is shaped by the person of Jesus deep within their character. And that is a community worth trusting. So you, you're a part of a community worth trusting. In particular, uh, over the last few months, I've gotten to know the elders here and the board here and the pastors here and have been so encouraged by them. I've been so welcomed and supported by each of them. In particular, I've gotten to spend quite a lot of time with Gerald and with Bethany and with Steve. And uh, their presence has been amazing, but their prayers, the ways that they've prayed for me, have held me up. And those are the kinds of people leading this church. In particular, I just want to say massive gratitude to John, Mark, and Tammy. Um, having planted and led a church in a city similar to this one, in a community similar to this one, uh, for several years behind this particular church, I can just say there is so much hard work and time and dedication. There's the burden, mainly an emotional burden, of carrying the needs of a community in a context like this, and most of it's unseen. And so to, to have a day like this where, like, in some sense, I feel like John Mark's giving away the bride, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the way that you've led. Thank you for the courage with which you've led. Thank you for all the prayers that you've prayed and the time that you have spent that no one else has seen shouldering the burden and the joy of this church. And um, I commit to you, man, in, in front of your family, that... I will lead just as prayerfully, just as courageously, um, just as passionately, just as lovingly as I've seen you lead. So thank you. I love you, brother. Um, we, we've been in this teaching series, Future Church, and, and I'm going to wrap the whole thing up today with the 10th and final installment, this one titled Justice and Peace in a Culture of Social Darwinism. I've asked Bethany to come and read our text for today, and as she comes, let me pray for us. Spirit of the living God, as we open up your word, we don't just open up uh, your word, but we open up our hearts. We tear our hearts open to you and we say, it is the living word that we thirst for. 
Would you come and reveal yourself to us in a new way or, or remind us of what you're like in a way that we've forgotten this morning, Jesus? Would you come in a personal way to each and every one of us? So right now, we just fill ourselves collectively with expectation that you are living and active, that you are among us, that, that whoever is most thirsty in this place for your presence, that your thirst to encounter us is far stronger and so we just posture ourselves before you now. And we say, come. We wait for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 11, verses 11 to 17. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Amen. So this is an infamous moment from the life of Jesus. The vast majority of you will have heard it before. Even most people that have never cracked open the Bible are aware that the Messiah once went berserk in the sanctuary. And it's difficult for us to overstate the importance of this episode in the whole of the biblical arc. Because first of all, We've just read from the Gospels, and that makes something a little bit extra important because we know that the whole of Scripture is leading up to Jesus and then following from Jesus. But secondly, this is in all four Gospels. And that puts it in exclusive company. By my count, it's one of five events that is recorded by all four of Jesus' reputable biographers prior to his final 24 hours. But one thing that's really interesting about this is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all locate this event in Jesus' final week, but John puts it at the beginning, right at the start of Jesus' life. So there's agreement that uh, this event is so important that we cannot understand Jesus without it. It's recorded by all the gospel writers, but there's discrepancy about when it happened. So what's with the discrepancy? Well, scholars are actually a bit divided on this. Some scholars believe that John uh, put it at the front for cinematic reasons, that he, writing later, decided to write more thematically than chronologically, and so he, he took the liberty to move this event to the front of Jesus' ministry as the lens through which we then view the whole of his mission. Other scholars believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice, which makes it funny to imagine the second time he rolled up and the priest must have been thinking, oh no, it's that rabbi again. Put the dove cages away and someone closed the register. 
But pick whichever theory suits you because if Jesus only cleansed the temple once, it meant that this moment was so vivid in John's mind that he placed it at the beginning of his gospel and said, this, this is the encapsulation of the heart of God through which we understand everything that is to come. And if Jesus cleansed the temple twice, that puts it in company all its own, an event so important that he bookended his ministry with it, returning for an encore. It's that important. So I want to give you this familiar story in three scenes. Mercy, justice, and peace. Scene one, mercy. John Perkins uh, was born in 1930 in Mississippi, which is a difficult time and place for a black man. He fled the South as soon as he could, and then later an encounter with Jesus caused him to return to the very place that he promised himself he would never go back to. He founded a ministry there in his hometown, serving kids that grew up just like he did, and two of his children, Spencer and Joni, were the first two black students to ever enroll at Mendenhall Public High School there in his hometown. That very same year that they enrolled, there happened to be a bit of a revival breakout in the chapel classroom of that high school. There were kids coming down to the front of their classroom in a sobbing mess and meeting Jesus in salvation in like third period chapel class. But in the two years that the Perkins kids were enrolled, not a single student ever spoke to them in the hallway or sat down with them in the cafeteria for lunch. Somehow, the walk down the aisle to meet Jesus had been divorced from the walk across the cafeteria to learn the name of the marginalized. Do you see the disconnect there? So before we get to how Jesus said it, we need to understand, after his temple tirade, what Jesus said. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you are making it a den of robbers? Now, there's a whole lot of context behind that statement. This house of prayer line, that wasn't original to Jesus. He's borrowing it from the prophet Isaiah, who was most well known for rebuking uh, Israel for divorcing private spirituality, things like prayer and scripture meditation from public spirituality, like care for the poor and the work of justice. And the den of robbers bit, it's Jeremiah's. These are words that he used to rebuke the priests of his time during the exile. So Jesus quotes a familiar line from a famous prophet to say to these priests of his time, you think you're the people of God, but the truth is you're on the wrong side of the story. It's very similar to an encounter he had with the same priests a couple of years prior when uh, they said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in response, Jesus quoted another prophet. This time it was Hosea. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So when Jesus offers a critique of the temple, or what we should think of as the church of his day, he has a habit of quoting the prophets. And each time he's getting at the same thing. He's using respected prophetic voices to deliver a common message. And that message, if we were to sum it up just in a single word, would be the Hebrew term, tzedakah. See, the biblical term for personal righteousness is tzedakah. And the biblical Hebrew term for outward justice is, does anyone have a guess? Sadaka. 
So that means when you read the Old Testament in English, everywhere you read righteous, you can just sub in justice. And everywhere you read justice, you can just sub in righteous. That's important. Because it means that biblically speaking, you cannot separate personal righteousness from outward works of justice and mercy. To be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous. The drum, the prophets just keep on beating is this. You are trying to separate something God has joined together, personal righteousness and outward justice. Many have summed up the prophetic message this way. The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society fared while you were alive. Based on that standard, how are we doing? What is the reputation of the church during the time we are alive among the weakest and most vulnerable groups in our Western society? You see, the claim here is that our standing with God does not only rest on private, personal spirituality, but on how we stand with the marginalized. That is the message that Jesus is delivering when he quotes familiar words like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, sacrifice in Hosea's context was referring to the strict observance of a religious ritual. And these priests that Jesus was talking to when he repurposed that statement were devout. Sabbath. We invented that. You're welcome, overworked Americans. Prayer, absolutely. Three times a day on the hour. I never miss it. Scripture, no, I don't read it. I recite it from memory. So they were what we might call spiritually formed. The trouble is that their spiritual formation was not spilling the banks of their lives to others. When we devote ourselves to personal righteousness without equally devoting ourselves to outward mercy, it's not the way of Jesus that we're practicing. It ends up being something more like spiritual wellness. See, when all of our practice does not edge us nearer to the margins of our society, we separate in our internal lives something that God fundamentally joined together, personal righteousness and outward justice, sadaqah. Hindsight makes it so easy for us to see the dysfunctional spirituality of the temple in the first century or uh, a high school in the South, in the American South in the 1960s. But what about now? And what about us? I mean, aren't we susceptible to the very same condition that I'm calling spiritual wellness, just cloaked in a new disguise of a new time and a new culture? I think spiritual wellness in a place like Portland might sound something like this. Oh yeah, I'm vegan, I do yoga three times a week, I've simplified to a capsule wardrobe, and I practice the way of Jesus. Now everything on that list is a good, good thing, but when it's not spent on others, it's a lifestyle, it's not a spirituality. See, if your discipleship with Jesus is not edging you increasingly toward the marginalized, this same disconnect is alive and well within you, cloaked in the clever disguise of a new time and a new place. And Jesus did not soften the prophetic sentiment. He raised the bar. In the Old Testament, one out of every 10 verses is about how we actively care for the poor among us. In the Gospel of Luke, that goes up to one out of every six. The prophets uh, made the claim that God stands with the poor. Jesus says that God is in the poor. 
But how you treat the poor is how you treat God, according to Matthew chapter 25. So mercy is not just an optional expression of worship for certain Christians who have a particular bend towards social justice. It is an inseparable part of what it means to follow Jesus. That's why when Dorothy Day was asked, how do you live the gospel? Her answer was simply, stay close to the poor. Is your discipleship to Jesus increasing your proximity toward the marginalized of your city? Proximity, that's the antidote to cure our spiritual wellness. Go and learn what this means. Other translations say, go and find out. That's how this term can be translated. Go and find out what this means. So we're not talking about classroom learning or library learning. We're talking about a relational kind of learning, an active kind of learning. Go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Read the story of a woman named Barbara Goodson in Houston, Texas, who cut hair at a salon, and she decided to start using her day off to offer free haircuts to the houseless. And what started as a couple haircuts a month ended up making her the unofficial free barber of the recently incarcerated and and released from prison. And then she began to volunteer and cut hair for free at a battered women's shelter that was in the midst of her city. She found a way to use what she had to increase the dignity of the undignified. She went and found out. So why not serve a foster family or begin to provide aid to a refugee or meet a kid who just needs someone to be consistent in their lives and become that source of consistency or start mopping the floors at the end of the day at a local rehab? I I don't know your city, soon to be our city. But I don't know, you know your city. Where are the pressure points of this city that happen to meet the resources and passions of this community? There's an invitation waiting for you there. Go and find out. But to really see the brilliance of Jesus' tirade in the temple, we're going to need to get a little bit technical and understand the blueprints and the rules. Because the house Jesus entered was not open to everyone. So I want you to take a look at this chart. There were certain people that didn't even get inside the outer gate. They were turned away at the door. Now, among those people were the terminally ill and the disabled. Lepers and the blind and the deaf and the handicapped, they could not get in the temple door because sadly, at this time, it was believed that a chronic physical illness was a divine curse. Uh, that, that the cause of a, of a chronic illness was that you had done something so bad that God had given you a terminal disease. And, and you're not bringing that curse in this holy place. That was the deeply flawed logic. So that's the house Jesus entered. Now let me show you the house Jesus leaves after he does a bit of rearranging. I'm going to read from Matthew's account. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The very next verse. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you see what Jesus has done? He brought the blind and the lame in with him, the disqualified, those barred from entry, the terminally ill and turned away at the door. Jesus says, bring them in. This is James and John carrying a wheelchair up the temple steps. It's it's the disciples guiding the blind through the door that they were never allowed to enter. And what happens once they're inside? He heals them. That means the priests no longer have any grounds to ask them to leave. The thing that kept them away, Jesus has taken that excuse 
away. He brings them into the presence of God where they're told they don't belong and heals them. Oh, that illness that you've misdiagnosed as spiritual, I've taken care of that. He's welcome in my father's house. She's welcome in my father's house. Jesus entered the temple and then made room for the disqualified to come in behind him. So as we increasingly regather as a church, who are you making room for by the way you come back into this community? Who's coming in behind you? What Jesus started there, he finished seven days later his crucifixion when the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. The symbolism of that was obvious. Everyone. That's who's welcome in my father's house. Everyone. And not after you get healed. In your current condition, just as you are, because it's the father's welcome that heals you, not the other way around. Jesus just turned the temple inside out. <laughs> See, flipping the tables wasn't a toddler throwing a tantrum. It was much more like a designer doing a bit of rearranging. Suddenly, the outsiders are the insiders, and the insiders are the outsiders. So if we're going to talk about mercy today, then we have to acknowledge that this starts in here. It starts in our house. Jesus did not start by critiquing the tax system and the unjust oppression of the Romans. He didn't point the finger at politicians and corrupt policies. He started with the church. He started in here, inside our doors. Stanley Hauerwas writes, the first task of the church is not to make the world more just, but to make the world more the world. What does he mean? He means only when we become a picture of an altogether different society do we actually have something better to offer the culture around us. This starts in here. So as we regather as a church, who is coming in behind you? Who is it that you are making room for in this family? Who do you know that implicitly, accidentally, is made to feel like an outsider among us? And how are you using the power or comfort or place you have in this family to make room for them? As we regather, the forgotten and the easy to overlook and the costly to love should be regathering with us. As we regather, this community should be messier than you remember it before. Because that's how Jesus comes into his house. A rich feast has been prepared here. The last chapter of this community was about setting a table with a feast so satisfying that you never hunger again. The next chapter needs to be about filling that table with the guest list that only makes sense in the kingdom of God. Gregory Boyle, a Catholic priest and the founder of Homeboy Industries in South Central LA, tells the story of a young boy that he mentored named Cruz. Cruz spent his last dollars taking a Metrolink train from Los Angeles to San Bernardino where he relocated his lady and newborn to avoid the dangers and desperation of his previous gang life. He had a part-time job but could not get his boss to give him more hours. Now he sits in my office rattling off a list of the pressures and needs of his family. With no safety net in sight but me, he speaks of no food in the fridge, no lights, landlord looming, no bus fare. And when he finishes his breathless account, Cruz stops, shaken and exhausted. He grows teary-eyed and says quietly, I just keep waiting. For what, son? I ask. For the last to be first. Can't that be now? I mean, at least for us. At least in this community, in this corner of this city, can't the last be first right now? 
That's where we start. It's definitely not the end. But that's where we have to start. Scene two, justice. Do I need to do something here? Is someone popping popcorn in the back? So that's what Jesus said. Now let's look at how he said it. Scene two, justice. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began, ah, this is where he's throwing tables over and, and changes spilling out across the stone floor. It's where he's kicking dove cages and there's feathers flying everywhere. He's got a homemade whip and he's leading a stampede down the temple steps. The meek and mild savior is raging. And it gets more interesting if you rewind a few verses. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So Jesus didn't act impulsively. He took a look. He noticed. He mulled things over. And then he went home and slept on it. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, so Jesus saw what he saw back at the temple, slept on it, then went back to the same temple the following morning. That means the actions that follow were premeditated. You see, most of us read this story like Jesus just flew off the handle in a spontaneous outburst of anger. Like Jesus got one look at the temple and, and then just lost it. But that's not it. This was carefully considered, strategically planned, and then meticulously executed. And in our justice system, that matters. There's a higher penalty for a premeditated crime. And that's because we understand the power of human emotion. All of us have lost ourselves at some point or another. We get it to some degree. But to plan the act sober-minded, to live it in your imagination again and again and again before you actually act on it, that's categorically worse. And Jesus slept on it. And this is not a crime of passion. It's Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> so what's Jesus, what's God so worked up about? Well, that takes us back to our blueprints. Uh, this story takes place in the court of the Gentiles. See, the ancient temple was divided by layers, each one protected by a gate. So even for those that did get past the front door and were allowed in the temple, there were then restrictions to your access. And the temple design wasn't so much about aesthetics as it was about theology. The belief was that the presence of God lives in the Holy of Holies at the center of this building, and that there were restrictions when it came to proximity to God's presence. And if you weren't of the chosen race, you weren't getting past the outer courtyard, hence the name, Court of the Gentiles. And where did the priest set up the marketplace? In the Gentiles' only place of worship, in their only place of prayer. By modern scholarly estimates, a dove outside the gates would have cost you six cents, but inside it cost about 75. And there was a currency exchange. The sanctuary shekel was the only acceptable form of payment. That's how they made sure you bought it inside. They were ripping people off who were trying to purchase forgiveness. That's what God is so worked up about. See, mercy is about humanizing and dignifying and serving those forced to live on the margins of our society. Justice is about correcting the systems and structures that marginalize them in the first place. 
Jesus did not just invite the blind in, he also turned over tables. He didn't only serve the victimized by the system, he also called the system what it was and then bent it toward justice. And he calls us to do both, to do mercy and justice, just as he did both mercy and justice. Jesus is about revival in the chapel class and racial justice in the school system. He's about feeding the hungry and systemic poverty. He's about visiting the prisoner and mass incarceration. He's about going to the margins to serve the down and out and making room for them in the seats around us right now. Jesus does both, and he calls us to do the same. But what happens when we do one without the other? What happens when we serve the victimized with one hand while benefiting from the system that victimizes them with the other? What happens when the cultural status quo becomes the lens through which we view Jesus rather than Jesus being the lens through which we interpret the culture and society around us? Kenneth Leach says this is what happens. The church then becomes a resource of the culture and no longer its critic. Theology becomes a servant of the social order. The God of justice is tamed and put at the service of organized injustice. You see, when the church practices mercy without justice, we're treating the symptoms while ignoring the disease. We're caring for the victims of a corrupt system without turning over the tables of the system that put them there in the first place. So listen now to the prophetic words of Amos. I find Eugene Peterson's paraphrase particularly helpful in this passage. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. In the Greco-Roman society where the early church took root, women were powerless and were described as possessions in the legal language of the empire. So sex slavery, or what we commonly call sex trafficking today, uh, was accepted as the norm. And then the early Christian church came along and it became the first community in history to call that injustice by its name and call the surrounding society to account. The historian Kyle Harper says that you can actually trace the spread of the early church by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery throughout the Roman Empire. Are you hearing that? In his estimation, the most reliable index for the early church's spread is the legal overturning of sexual violence against victimized women. Do you know what that sounds like? Good news. It sounds like justice. See, justice at the end of the day is a relational work. It's about right relationships with others. It is a setting right of what got thrown off balance in the fall. This is why Dr. Cornell West says love in public is called justice. That's what flipping the tables in the court of the Gentiles was. It was a profound public act of love. Jesus took in the sight, went back home, laid awake all night, burdened for those for whom knowing the Father had all these additional hurdles and obstacles, and so he went back the following morning and cleared the way. Justice. So that's mercy, justice. That brings us to scene three, peace. 
In his memoir, Paul Kalanithi, who was a neurosurgeon, describes this particularly trying day early on in his medical residency when he had guided a young couple through labor and delivery and then celebrated with them at that euphoric moment when they greeted their firstborn, only to realize seconds later that there was something terribly wrong. He writes this, Driving home later that night after gently explaining to a mother that her newborn had been born without a brain and would die shortly, I switched on the radio. NPR was reporting on the continuing drought in California. Suddenly tears were streaming down my face. When I read that bit, I thought about that one scene in Hotel Rwanda where the cameraman finally gets close enough to the suffering to capture it firsthand, and he turns excitedly to the reporter, and he says, we'll finally get somewhere when the world sees this. And the reporter says, ah, I bet they'll just go on eating dinner. See, the pain that we interact with up close, it, it has the power to soften our hearts or to harden them. It either opens us up to the suffering or it numbs us and causes us to build up walls to ignore the pain that's around us all the time. What makes the difference? What separates a, a detached, cynical news reporter from a neurosurgeon that weeps on his way home? Relationship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, only love gets close enough to know. And that doctor in residency, he got close enough to know close enough to know a name and a face and a story to touch the suffering with his own hands. And that made all the difference. So we know what Jesus said in the temple and how Jesus said it, but peace is about who Jesus said it with. The temple cleansing wasn't a crime of passion. We've already covered that. Jesus left the city and slept on it. That means he wasn't staying in Jerusalem. It means that he was traveling in and out of the city each day. So where was Jesus laying his head at night? Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Bethany. Jesus is crashing in the village of Bethany. Later on, Mark gets a bit more specific. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of, in the home of Simon the leper. The home of Simon the leper. That's where Jesus was eating his meals, laying his head, and having coffee in the morning in the last seven days of his life. And to enter the home of a leper, to eat at their table, to share their company, would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. That means until he undergoes the rigorous, time-consuming Levitical cleansing processes, he can't come into the temple. And this is Passover week. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi willingly making himself unclean at Passover See, it wasn't just that the outsiders could come in and be called clean. Jesus also went out and was called contaminated by associating himself with the outsiders. It's that he was cutting himself off from the formal father's presence at the highest of high holidays. Jesus was saying, in effect, if he's not fit for my father's house, then neither am I. He did more than just invite the marginalized onto his turf, he got comfortable on theirs. And Jesus told a, a confusing, dark parable that actually makes a little bit of sense of this. It gives some color to it. It's found in Luke chapter 16, typically called the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. From there, the parable skips ahead to the death of both men. The poor man, Lazarus, is in heaven. The rich man is in hell, but he can see heaven somewhere far off in the distance. And so he cries out to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that's the end of the parable. That's where the credits roll. It's the dark, moody, indie film of parables. The story's just going and going. You're not sure where it's going. And then at some point, it just ends. (laughs) At first glance, the obvious conclusion is that... uh, The rich man has been condemned because he was not merciful. But I want to invite you past the first glance to take a little bit of a closer look here. The the rich man, dressed in the purple of royalty, living in luxury, allows Lazarus, a homeless man with leprosy, to live at the front of his gate and eat his excess food. Now think about that. This is the front gate of a private residence. The movers and shakers in the Jerusalem finance world are coming in and out of his home. And in order to get in there, they're passing by a houseless leper. Now, to be sort of a vagabond is one thing, but we've already covered the social stigma that came along with leprosy in that day. How many of you have a terminally ill, uh, homeless patient living at the end of your driveway? I mean, look, this man took care of the needs of the poor. On some level, he took social risks to care for him. He let him crash at his gate. He fed him the leftover filet mignon from his business dinners. So there must be something going on here beyond just a lack of mercy. Well, only in this parable does Jesus give a name to one of his characters. And did you notice what he names the leper? Lazarus. That's the name of arguably Jesus' best friend, uh, closer even than his brothers, the man whose loss caused Jesus to famously weep and then act miraculously. And did you catch the rich man's request, even after he was condemned, send Lazarus to my five brothers? He's still urgently concerned for his people, for his siblings on a deeper level than he's ever been concerned for the man that he's now trying to use as a messenger. To summarize the theologian Leonard Sweet, the rich man is condemned because he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six. See, this wasn't a sin of mercy. He helped Lazarus. It was a sin of relationship. He did not see him as family. He did not embrace him as a brother. He didn't welcome him all the way in to sit at his table. He didn't include him in his community. The rich man did not lack mercy. He alleviated Lazarus' suffering from a safe distance. He lacked relationship. He did not enter into that suffering with him. He did not get close enough to know. He kept him in a separate space as a particular project. Why? Because isolated acts of generosity and mercy are easier than welcoming someone all the way in so they can be redeemed. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were never offended that Jesus would serve the poor or be a missionary to the marginalized. They were offended that he would recline at a table with them, that he'd look them on level ground eye to eye, that he'd associate with them like family and call them brother and sister. 
My friend Gemma served for years at this organization called Broken Hearts. Uh, that looks after homeless uh, addicts on the streets of LA and a few other cities. And she told me of this one time when this guy that she knew from the streets named Casey ended up in the ER. And due to a combination of a crystal meth habit and a prostituting his own body in order to fund that habit, he ended up with a painful, large abscess that opened up on his leg that caused him to have to be hospitalized. And she got a call from uh, this one other guy that she knew from the streets that was there at the hospital with Casey, and he said, look, the doctor is ready to release Casey, but he won't do it unless someone commits to pack and dress the wound twice a day. And Gemma says, like, you just want me to wrap gauze around a wound? Sure, yeah, of course. Of course, I'm happy to help in that way. So she shows up at the hospital, and the doctor seems surprised. He said, are, are you sure? You're really willing to do this? And she's like, yeah, doc, just give me a first aid kit. It's going to be fine. I've got this. And that's when the doctor pointed her to the wound, and she realized that leg was a relative term, that this abscess was significantly further north than what most would define as a leg. And so Gemma spent the next week dressing and undressing this wound twice a day, entering into the pain and vulnerability of addiction ravaging both a soul and a body, bearing the burden right alongside Casey. Richard Rohr, who has said a lot of things I disagree with and has written whole books that I wouldn't recommend, has also said a few really wise and prophetic things along the way. And he had this to say in his book, Contemplation and Action. I still feel that our culture and frankly much of our peace and justice work is dominated by very fragile egos. The self that begins the journey is not the self that arrives at the gospel. The self that begins is the self we think ourselves to be, the superior self we want to be. This is the self that dies along the way until no one is left. This is the true self, the self bigger than death yet born of death, a different self than the private I, a self transformed by God and transformed in God. And then he goes on to conclude, those born of such a death will be the deepest agents of peace and justice. You see, when we stop keeping a safe distance and get close enough to know, when we stop advocating for the cause and get to know the name and face and story beneath the cause, when we stop sending cards to the hospital and start packing and dressing the wound, that's when we are transformed in a way that can truly transform others. That's when we die to ourselves so that we can come fully alive. The Quaker missionary Parker Palmer says it this way, we cannot do good by standing back and pulling levers that drop bounty on people who need it. Right action can be only an immersion that involves us in relationship. And that's what we mean by peace. Peace expressed between two people is called kinship. In the Hebrew scriptures, it's the word shalom, a reference back to Eden and a pointing forward to the new Jerusalem. It's peace with God, peace with myself, peace with other people, and peace between nations and structures that occupy our world. In the Greek New Testament, it's the word irene, which uh, most literally means rest, an allusion to the eternal rest that's promised us in Jesus. It's what Isaiah had in mind when he says, I will teach them a new word, peace. I will give peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far away. I will heal them. The Lord himself has said this. And it's what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said of Jesus, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. 
And it's what James was talking about when he wrote to the church. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? You see, peace means kinship. It means getting close enough to love. Kinship cannot happen from a safe distance. It's inconvenient, and it involves you in relationship. Kinship is a sort of love that enters into and relieves the burden by shouldering some of it myself. It's... it's turns a stranger from a mouth to feed or a statistic to correct or a cause to champion into brother or sister. Peace means that's who he's made us to one another. Ultimately, David Fitch concludes, while most churches have programs to reach out to the homeless, destitute, or broken peoples, rarely do we minister to them by making them a part of our congregation. Our local congregations look strangely homogenous in comparison to our visions and programs. See, I want you to hear me say this, Bridgetown. It is not enough to serve the poor. Jesus does not call us to charity. He calls us to family. Our call is to share the whole of our lives, not a specified portion of our income or a scheduled allotment of our time. Our call is not only to alleviate the practical needs of the down and out, it's to love them into the kingdom in a way that costs us something and it's complete only when they're sitting side by side with us in a gathering like this one and we're passing the rolls to them across the table at our community. That's what we're called to. Portland is not waiting on a slick church with awesome branding and cool gatherings. But don't make the opposite mistake either. Portland's also not waiting on a woke church with all the right social stances and an amazing Twitter feed. Portland is awaiting a different kind of family. And until that's who we are, people whose friendships do not make sense by the city's invisible dividing lines and unspoken code of conduct, Portland keeps waiting. Can't the last be first in here? At least right now at least for us. All right, I'm going to wrap this thing up or I'm going to get the same reputation as John Mark. <laughs> I was uh, riding the subway one day a couple years ago, and it's really common to be asked for change on the subway in New York City. Uh, it's the one place that's got AC in the summer and heat in the winter, and so if you don't have a roof to shelter you, it's a place that uh, you can find a bit of warmth at least. And there's one particular guy, he wasn't just asking the passengers for change, he was verbally accosting those of us on this particular subway car. He was screaming and cursing us out, angry, saying that he was not seen and he was not helped. And so, like everyone else who felt like this is a physical threat, this is a strange situation, everyone just sort of averted their eyes and pretended not to notice and waited it out, and I did the same. And then about a month after that, I uh, finished preaching at my church, and I went and I sat down in the seats, or I stood in front of my seat as we began to sing, and this guy, Chadwick, from my community, came up to me as people were responding for prayer at the front, and he said, hey, Tyler, I want you to meet Mike. I think he could use some prayer today, and I look up, and it's that guy. It's that guy from the subway that I looked away from, looking at me just completely soft-hearted, asking for prayer. Now I got the story later, it turns out that Chadwick had invited or had met him the exact same way I had met him, only instead of averting his eyes, he had the courage to interrupt this man's rant and learn his name. 
And that led to a conversation between them, which led to several meals that they shared, which led to Chadwick attempting to help him in some sustainable way, which about a month into friendship led to Chadwick inviting him to church. I saw a stranger and averted my eyes. Chadwick saw a brother and invited him in. Now, that was two years ago. And Mike is still a part of our community in Brooklyn today. He knows everybody's name and everybody knows his. He worships with us every Sunday. Members of our community have fed him when he had nothing. He spent Christmas morning in various people's homes. He's been helped to find employment so that he went from panhandling to earning a legal wage. He's been helped to find a room and an apartment. And when that one fell through another room and when that one fell through another room and when that one fell through another room, he's, he's been helped to find a rehab that can treat his addiction. And the nine times he didn't show up, there were still members of our community waiting hopefully for him on the 10th. Recently, it was Mike's birthday and he hung around our church all day while our staff came and went throughout the work day. He was like a little kid waiting for people to notice and remember that it was his birthday. And uh, no one said happy birthday to him. But that was by design. <laughs> and uh, Mike was fuming. He was throwing this quiet little tantrum. Uh, but it was very, very noticeable to the rest of us. And we were all kind of smirking and laughing about it, pretending not to notice. And then he showed up to the 6 p.m. counseling appointment that one of our pastors had set with him. And when he walked into the church door, all of us jumped out, surprise! And he was so overjoyed, he fell on his back in the middle of the church and just started laughing hysterically. And just to see the way, like the look on his face and the way he was enveloped in love and known and included and celebrated it was as supernatural as heaven on earth as any church service I've ever been to. I'm the guy who averted my eyes and pretended not to notice him. You know what my community's taught me? They've taught me what it means to welcome him all the way in so that he can become family. If our spiritual formation is not increasing us increasingly moving us toward the margins, if it's not changing the makeup of this family when we gather together and the makeup of the company around your dinner table, if it's not making us more uncomfortable at first and then more alive in the end, then go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So is there a practice uh, that can move us in the direction of finding out? Is there a way for us to start putting one foot in front of the other toward mercy, justice, and peace? Yeah, there is. It's rice and beans. Half the world lives on less than $2 a day and eats two meals a day, almost entirely made up of rice and beans. And so if the burden of the poor and powerless is going to become our burden, we first have to enter into it. So I'm suggesting that you pick a night. You could do this once a week. You could do it every other week. You could do it when you gather in communities or it could replace your Friday takeout order. For my family, it's Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, we have rice and beans and only rice and beans for dinner. And we pray particular prayers and we remember the privilege that we carry and, and those who do not carry it. Now, technically, that practice is called intercession. It's definitely not the end, but it is a place to start. Eat. But eat in a way that opens your eyes to the needs around you. And that'll open up your eyes and it'll put new prayers in your lips and it'll redirect your steps and it'll even make this community a bit more of a mess in all of the beautiful and heavenly kind of ways. Rice and beans, let's start there. 
And, and there's going to be resources put together to help you practice this and prayers and scriptures that you can pray alongside this that I'm sure someone can tell you where you can find in, in the days to come. But in closing, I just want to say this. I feel compelled to, to name that Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, you did that for me. This is not a rebuke. It's not even a call to action. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to discover Jesus in one of the places he promises to be found, and that's in the eyes of the marginalized. And is that going to feel awkward and forced at first? Yeah. Just like it did the first time you stepped into a church building or the first time you were embraced in love after a confession or the first time you opened up the pages of Scripture, the first time you raised your hands in worship. It always feels awkward and forced at first with Jesus. And it always feels like home in the end. And so I, I just hear the voice of Jesus saying over so many of you right now, will you meet me in the company of the forgotten, in the eyes of the marginalized? Will you become comfortable in a new place of encounter, a place that I've promised to meet you just like I've met you here? Can't you meet me there?